Good morning, Trailview. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Um, today we'll be in Ruth 4, 14 through 17. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in, in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. God. Thank you, Kathy. Okay, guys. I'm excited. We are in our Advent season and series and things and all that good kind of stuff. And we left off last week with the story of Abraham. And so we're going to continue today, and I'm just going to prepare you ahead of time. It's going to look a little different than normal because one of the amazing aspects of Advent is that there is a very long, fantastic story that's being told here that we're seeing played out over thousands of years. And what we're watching and what we're seeing and learning as we take these kind of big snapshots of, of sections of Scripture is that there is a redemption story that is unfolding right in front of us. So today what I want to do is bridge the gap from where we left off with Abraham all the way till we get to Ruth. Now, yes, that's like eight books of the Bible or something like that. And so I'm, we're not going word for word. We're going to do a lot of Brandon's par paraphrasing, all that good kind of stuff. But I just want you to hear the story of what is happening, the, the events that unfold, the redemption stories that are happening in the midst of these things, getting us to Ruth. And when we get to Ruth, we're going to go over the whole book. Again, Brandon paraphrase style. There's going to be some amazing aspects of that book that we want to focus on and look at as it helps us to understand how God goes about redeeming people, how he meets us in the everyday mundane events of our lives and brings people closer to him. So I am just super excited. So uh, let's strap in. Like I'm ready. I hope you guys are ready. I love walking through the big stories of the Bible and, and letting things lay out. It kind of brings a sense of clarity that kind of gets uh, murky when I'm not doing that very often. So we left off with Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, uh, with the help of, of his mother, Rebecca, Jacob uh, deceives Isaac and giving him Esau's portion of inheritance. You guys remember this part? Esau then threatens to kill Jacob. So Jacob runs away to work for his uncle Laban. Over the course of 14 years, Jacob and Laban deceive each other multiple times. Reading that story, it is ridiculous. And eventually, uh, forcing Jacob to flee quickly with his wives, I said plural, wives, Leah and Rachel. Both of those are Laban's daughter, and his many children, and the flocks that he has stolen from Laban. There, there's that story. And so, so Jacob has like no choice after that moment. He's got to return home. He's got to face Esau. He's terrified about the whole thing. And on this night, he's crossing this river and they're fleeing and all these kind of things. And he runs into like a impromptu wrestling match with a random fella. Like, why not? We're on the bank of a river. Let's throw down. Let's go. I've got nothing going on right now. Every time you see pictures and portraits of these things, it paints, uh, it, it paints um, two different people nude. You're welcome. Wrestling. And I don't, I don't know how I like that interpretation, but I just wanted to point that out. So that, that's what's happening. Um, 
One night before that happens, Jacob wrestles with this mysterious person. It turns out to be God in an epic battle throughout the night, which is kind of just hilarious. Epic on the man's side, not so much for God. Uh, the whole thing ends uh, when you know, he touches his side and pops his hip out of, hip out of joint, and he's like, ha, keep on fighting. And so at the end of that whole thing, he gives Jacob a new name, Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. Jacob and Esau eventually reconcile. They live long lives with many descendants. And so we fast forward a bit further down the road. That's Jacob and Esau moving from, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now we're going to move on down to Joseph. And Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. 12 of them. And Genesis uh, 37 through 50 is pretty much all about these sons, but in particular, his most beloved son, Joseph. Whereas the stories of Abraham and Jacob seem to be kind of small, independent stories passed down to generations of kind of like oral storytelling, the saga of Joseph is like an ultra-complex story. I love rereading the, the, the whole story about Joseph. Uh, so the other sons are jealous that Joseph is his favorite, demonstrated by Joseph being given that um, uh, long ornamental tunic. We have 13 different phrases for it, Technicolor Dream we can go all day long. Uh, but he, it's obvious that he's his favorite, and he's given that thing to show him. So his brothers, super frustrated, sell Joseph into slavery, into Egypt, and he eventually ends up in an Egyptian prison. There's so many wonderful details in there, but we don't have time. We've got to keep moving. Uh, so like, Joseph comes to the attention of Pharaoh through his ability to interpret dreams, which comes in super handy because Pharaoh is like ultra troubled by a dream that he keeps on having. And no matter who he keeps asking to, to interpret the dream, they keep failing wouldn't you love to have that job interview? Hey, you're going to die if you can't interpret this dream right. Cool. Uh, so anyways, uh, they push through that. Joseph eventually becomes put in charge of running almost all of Egypt, uh, which is just kind of hilarious. And so uh, he puts him in charge of leading Egypt in particular through a seven-year famine that's about to happen. When the famine strikes the land of Canaan, Jacob his other sons come to Joseph, though not recognizing who he is, and they are asking for his help because they don't have food. After putting his brothers through these hilariously elaborate tests, and they're not actually that funny, uh, and, and to test their virtue and honesty, Joseph reveals his identity to them. The entire family, family, including Jacob himself, they end up settling in Egypt, surviving the famine, and prospering afterwards for many generations. So like, we're going to scoot through. We just finished out almost all of Genesis, okay? So we'll just keep, keep moving through. The book of Exodus, though, is arguably one of the most important when you're looking at the storytelling bits of Jewish scriptures. It picks up the story about 400 years after the conclusion of Genesis. While Jacob and his sons originally moved to Egypt voluntarily to survive a famine, their descendants, their descendants have now been enslaved entirely uh, by Pharaoh, who knew nothing of Joseph. So Joseph's favor as the number two ruling the land is all but forgotten. So, um, um, okay, Moses, uh, an, an Israelite man who's raised in the house of Pharaoh, is eventually called by God by the burning bush to lead the Israelite people from slavery, chapters 1 through 6. After God sends these 10 plagues on the Egyptians, the Israelites escape Egypt by passing through the Red Sea. You guys know this. Look at this incredible story. These are the things we see in the Prince of Egypt. When's the last time you watched that movie? You should go right now. Don't go right now. We're not done. Um, but so Moses uh, ends up um, establishing this covenant with the Israelites through Moses on Mount Sinai. They leave. You guys know all the amazing things that happen, pillars of fire, Red Sea parting, and all those kinds of things. They flee. And God, uh, God promises to be the Israelites' God if they keep the law, the Torah that God will give them. And that's chapters 16 through 19. Moses stays on the mountaintop for 40 days as God dictates um, the law to him, chapters 20 through 31. But the Israelites rebel. 
while this is happening, seconds after being freed and rescued and all in Rome, they go right back uh, by building a golden calf to worship instead. Moses Moses comes down, super frustrated. What are you guys doing? The Israelites repent. Hey, we're good to go. That's chapters 32 to 34. Moses directs the people according to God's extremely detailed instructions. Please keep a little note on that. To build all the necessary items to conduct the rituals of the law including the ark to house the tablets on which the law is written. A year after their escape from Egypt, the work is completed. God descends in the cloud uh, to direct the journey of the Israelites throughout the chapter. So like we've just, we're just fast-forwarding. You guys remember what it was like? Go, go back to VHS days. Like You can't even understand all that's happening. You're just getting little bits and snippets and pictures. That's what we're doing. And we're going to push through. That's kind of the end of Exodus here. Uh, now uh, the book of Leviticus. Super fun to read. Um, while extremely important, particularly in, in Jewish uh, uh, categories, it's not as central to like the tenets of a lot of Christianity. Don't hear me say it's not important. Don't hear me say it's not scripture. I'm just saying what you're getting there is a massive list, a massive list of rules and laws. So while the commandments are mostly concerned with rituals, feast, and purity, uh, they uh, also cover rules like governing economics, ethics, and behavior. It's like a here's how to go and do the things that you're supposed to be doing list. And so it's best understood not as a legislation, but as like an establishment of a moral society. Uh, and as with the second half of Exodus, though, there's, a little narrative con- uh, there's very little narrative content in Leviticus, uh, which uh, ends up stymieing a lot of Christians when they're trying to read the Bible from beginning to the end, because you get there and you're like, how about I said what now? Yeah. By the way, that's the exact phrasing that you say when you read that. How about I said what now? Uh, so we're going to jump to Numbers, the book of Numbers. Covers the events of the Israelites while they're wandering in the desert wilderness, years filled with a remarkable amount of complaining by the chosen people of God. Uh, the most significant sequence of this event, though, is found in chapters 13 and 14, when shortly after the end of chapter 40 in Exodus, God commands the Israelites to invade the land of Canaan. With, uh, this is the promised land that's been promised to them uh, since the time of Abraham. So when the advanced scouts question the Israelites' ability to conquer the Canaanites and all the other people despair, God condemns this doubting generation to wander the rest of their lives in the desert before allowing their progeny to enter the promised land. Talk about the sins of the parents. Okay, Uh, taking its name from the word second law, the book of Deuteronomy is primarily comprised of three different speeches given by Moses shortly before the Israelites entered the Holy Land. And it's truly uh, an interesting moment as the people prepare to enter the promised land as a unified nation after decades of wandering in the wilderness. Seizing this moment, Moses reiterates um, the whole of the law and the history that has brought these people to this momentous occasion. Uh, so it's uh, sweeping, majestic language. Deuteronomy is one of the most frequently quoted books of Jewish scriptures. Like, for example, when Jesus is tempted in the mountains uh, in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and Luke 4, 1 through 13, both Jesus and Satan both quote Deuteronomy and on and on again. All the times, a lot of quotes back, throwbacks to Deuteronomy. So moving forward, Moses dies. I know, it's sad. Uh, Moses dies on Mount Nebo. Joshua leads the Israelites into the Holy Land with the waters of the Jordan River parting in chapter 3 in a very similar way to how the Red Sea parted in Exodus 14. And all this is told by the book of Joshua. The conquest of the Holy Land is relatively quick and easy. And whenever the Israelites have faith in God's instruction, the most notable moment of the conquest is the fall of the walls in Jericho in chapter 6. Don't you hate it when Siri won't do this stuff? Okay, we're good now. Um... The book of Joshua should not be understood as a history of how the Israelites became dominant power in the Holy Land. Rather, it's a cautionary tale for the nation to faithfully obey the exact orders that God has given them. So we 
move on to the conquest of Canaan. They've moved into the Holy Land. All that's completed by the end of chapter 12. And the reader, honestly, as you're reading this, you're probably shocked at the carnage that's going on. It's pretty terrible stuff. Um, Chapters 13 to 24 describe in detail how the land was divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, One, you can kind of recall that um, from Genesis to Jacob, um, from Genesis, that Jacob later called Israel, he had 12 sons. Ten of the tribes are the descendants of ten of Jacob's sons, Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Dan, all the names. And then uh, the descendants of Jacob's son, Levi, which included Moses, Arian, and Miriam, uh, are the priests of the nation, not given a share of the land. So you have this full separation of, hey, we moved into the promised land. Here's how it gets separated. Here's who gets what. Here's who got gypped. Here's all these kind of things. And so that's kind of what's happening in this moment. So uh, Joshua gives the people the opportunity to reaffirm their commitment to the Lord. As one, the people of all the tribes loudly assent to continue to serve the Lord. It's like a, um, you know, a recommitment. Um, you guys have been through that if you've all went to youth group. Um, so um, when, the jo- when the book of Joshua presents the conquest of the land of Cana as a quick and clean accomplishment, the book of Judges presents a much more complicated situation. Many of the pre- previous inhabitants of Canaan uh, still reside in that land at the time. And the Israelites fail to uphold their pledge that they unanimously and unified came together and said, yes, we're still going to follow you. Like they've totally messed that up. And uh, the enemies of Israel judge, not a wig and gavel, uh, but like a person and a judge to lead them mightily in battle. Just don't be confused by the judge part. And so uh, someone who serves has like a regional or a general leader, uh, not like the judicial fisher. And so this person brings back the people to worship the Lord and leads them into these military victories. But here's how this thing, it's like a disgusting, spiraling cycle of death. It just, it really is. Uh, Upon the death of each judge, the Israelites return to their pagan ways every single time. And the judges, it, it judges tells the story of six great judges, uh, six great judges, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And, and also at the very end tells the story of Abimelech, who like wants to desiring to become king of Israel, and that ultimately just leads to his downfall. So you have this really difficult book to read because it talks about some of the worst aspects of life. Just the full-on depravity of humankind, war, battle, death, bad things, and constantly, people constantly rebelling against God and going back to their own made-up ways of worship. So while Judges is one of the most violent and disturbing books of the Bible, uh, the violence is clearly presented as like an example of the depravity of the Israelites as they turned away from God. So we cannot ignore these very sad and disturbing stories. We need to continue to grapple with them in our quest to understand God and kind of how he calls us to be who he calls to be. So at the conclusion of the book of Judges, Roughly 700 years since God first made his promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, those promises are still only partially fulfilled. Abraham's descendants are numerous as the stars visible to the naked eye, and they reside in the promised land. However, they are not in full possession of the land, and they are not yet a great nation. That promise will be fulfilled in a few more generations to come. Which brings us to the book of Ruth. So I know you heard seven of those words, but like, that is a lot happening. 
That is a 700 years movement of all the things that are going on. And in each one of those stories, we continually get to see God and his redemptive story reaching out, getting down into the muck and mire and taking unfaithful, unworthy people and partnering that with his faithfulness to redeem them back to himself. And that is just the, the crux of the, redemption, the redemptive story that's coming. So it brings us to the book of Ruth. Now, uh, the book of Ruth begins... Uh, with a line that says, uh, um, in the days that the judges ruled. So we are in those days. This is a dark and hard time with a lot of death and a lot of leaders who step back up and try to bring people to God and then they mess up and there's more death and we're, it's just a tough time. And one of the things, because here's what we're going to do, we're going to look at the book of Ruth we're going to understand what's really happening in this story because it is, while only four chapters, a really specific story of God getting down into the, the, the nitty-gritty of someone's life through his providence and redeeming them back to him. And one of the things that you're, we're going to see, as we just read in our scripture today, um, like this is where David's grand, grandmother and grandfather come from. Like We're in that lineage. We're in that line of the Messiah coming. It's a really interesting section. And if you haven't read Ruth, I really encourage you to do it. You can probably just knock it out in a little bit. And so here we go. Ruth invokes this question. The book of Ruth invokes this question. How is God engaged with us in the day-to-day hardships of our lives? And I just love that. I love that whole thing. There's three main characters. You have Naomi, who is the widow. You have Ruth, who is this Moabite. And then you have Boaz, who is a no-nonsense farmer. And this story, it's told in four chapters, and it's beautifully designed and arranged. Like, it just matches up, just if you'll, um, I can't think of the word. Like, just looking at a piece of work, of literature, it's really well done. It's really fun to read because it makes a lot of sense and it flows well. We don't always get that. So here we are. Let's jump into chapter one. Now, here's what we're going to do. As we work through these four chapters and we're taking big swaths about it, there's going to be three different particular things that we want to focus on that are helping us to understand God's redemption story, how it's coming about, how you and I interact with that moment. And so I just I want us, as we're doing this, to kind of push through um, not just hearing the narrative and the overall longer storytelling there, but seeing these truths hidden for us, ready for us to take on to. So, um, It opens up with, in the days that the judges ruled. That reminds us of this very dark, these difficult days that are found when you read through the book of Judges. Uh, Here we are, and we meet an Israelite family living in Bethlehem, and they are struggling to survive through a famine at this moment. So in search of food, they move to the land of Moab. Uh, And what's interesting about this is the Moabites are an ancient enemy of the Israelites. And I don't mean like, hey, we don't like those guys. It's like, a, hey, we still hate these people. Want nothing to do with them. See them as second-class citizens. Like, there is no love lost between these two different groups. And so in search of food, they moved to Moab. Um, here, once they move, uh, the father of the family dies. And the two sons marry two Moabite women. The two Moabite women that they marry are Ruth and Orpah. And so here's what happens. So they move. They're trying to find themselves some food. They move from where they are in Bethlehem all the way to Moab. And they're settling down. The sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And right when all that happens, um, their dad dies. And so 
10 years into their moving there, um, the two sons died. So you're talking about a family that had to move and leave the community that they had to go be foreigners in the land that hates them and they also hate, but there's food. So they move there and the father, the patriarch of the family, passes away. The two sons who marry into to the, the, the Moab community have two um, now daughter-in-laws are with me, and both of those sons die. So we're looking at a high tragedy event of a family. That's a lot of death to happen. And so Naomi, having just lost her husband and now both of her sons, she has no reason to stay and remain in Moab. So she tells her two daughter-in-laws pretty much that she's going to move back to Bethlehem. Um, Naomi knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very, very difficult. Like if Orpah and Ruth were to join her in going back to Bethlehem and living there, it's going to be incredibly difficult. They will not have any ground to stand on. They won't have any land. They won't have a husband. Like They're going to be on the fringe of society uh, asking for a whole bunch of help. So she knows this. So she tells both of them, hey, you should just stay. Like, that's going to be really hard and difficult for you. You should just stay. So Orpah uh, listens to Naomi and says, I agree, I'll, I'll stay. Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to the family that she had just married into, even though her husband is now dead. And Ruth pretty much says uh, this right here to Naomi, and I absolutely love this section of scripture. Here's what she says. She says, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be will die. Nothing but death parts me from you. Dang, that's so cool. Like that's like the ultimate allegiance speech given to someone. Like I can just if you don't get excited by hearing, I mean, that's like an ironclad covenant right there. I, I just love that. And it's so eloquent and so beautiful. And you can just tell that that is just filled with so much compassion and love. So the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, they return to Israel together. Now this journey back to Israel concludes with Naomi changing her name. Now, she's been through a whole bunch. She lost her husband and her two sons while she had to leave her home already and go to a foreign land just so they can survive and live. Now she's moving back without husband, without the two sons, without one of the daughter-in-laws, and they have nothing. And so uh, as she's going back to Israel, um, her and Naomi, she has this conversation with, with, with Ruth, and she says, hey, I don't want you to call me Naomi anymore. I want you to call me Mara. And Mara is a Hebrew word which just means bitter. Like she's changing her name to how she feels. She does that because she believes that God is punishing her. And so she says, I, I will no longer be called Naomi. Um, you can call me Mara. And so she does this as she continues to lament this tragic fate of her family. So that's kind of the end of chapter one there. Chapter two begins with Naomi and Ruth having this discussion. They're in Israel about where they're going to find some food. They've returned to Israel at the beginning of this barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to pick some barley. And it just so happens that she's picking grain in the field owned by a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. So here's the thing. Here's the first thing that, I, that we want to take from this section of looking at Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and how 
God interacts, blesses, and redeems those who are faithful to him. So the first thing that we want to look at today is that God blesses his faithful children. God blesses his faithful children. Let's dig in and see what happens as Ruth and Boaz meet. So now Boaz is a man of noble character. That's how the book describes him. He's a man of noble character. Would that you all called me a man of noble character. That just sounds great. I'm going to sign up for that. Maybe I'll just say I identify as a man who... No, is that too much? It's too, that's too much. Let's just go back. So as he finds out more about Ruth, Ruth's story, he demonstrates remarkable generosity towards her, incredible generosity towards her. He ends up giving her this special immigrant status to pick grain on his lands, uh, and so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, in doing this, uh, Boaz is actually obeying a very specific command uh, that God gave in the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and to the poor. So Boaz meets Ruth. He sees what's going on. He understands this story. He's overwhelmed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. And so as a part of that, he's just realizing this is a, a woman of high character, of high integrity, an incredible loyalty to her family. So he's very generous. He's allowing her free reign to feed herself off his land. And here's what's incredible. We're not talking like she goes out and picks um, like a, a, enough for like a meal. No, he ladens her up like full loads of grain so that she has plenty to give. And then on top of that, he goes to all the men who work the fields and he says, hey, you can't mess with her. She's going to go out with the women that work for him and stay with the women so that the men honestly just don't defile her. It's literally what he says. He is providing protection for her, safely to go and feed her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. So Boaz is so overly impressed with, with Ruth's loyalty to Naomi that he does this incredible thing where he prays for her, and he prays and he asks that God would bless her because of her boldness. And I just love that. We are called to live a bold life for the faith that we claim to have. We are called to pronounce Jesus' name, to live by his words and his laws, to, to forsake the ideas and the movements of this world. We are to be bold people. And Boaz in this moment recognized this these things in Ruth's life and says, hey, let's pray that God blesses you for your boldness. So God blesses his faithful children. So he prays for her. Ruth comes home that day and tells Naomi, uh, hey, I met this guy named Boaz. And Naomi is like rocked because Naomi's like, that's my relative. Like, I know him. He's a good guy. And how did it work out that like the place that you were picking grain like was his place? And um, she gets super excited because she tells Ruth that Boaz is their kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer. Now, let me just explain this real quick. This whole redeemer thing. Uh, this is a cultural practice in Israel um, where if a man in a family died and he left behind a family, wife, and kids and land, uh, then it was the responsibility of the family redeemer to, if possible, marry that widow, take up the lands of the family, and protect the family line. I think the thing that sounds so awkward when we hear that is we don't realize that um, Naomi, even though they had family lands, 
would still have nothing. In that society, not just, not, not just Israelite society, not just Hebrew society, we're talking in that day and age, in ancient Near East, like that area. Um, if you were a single woman or a widowed woman and you didn't have any sons, you were probably just not going to make it. And so a part of this is to ensure that the family is protected, that the family name goes on, that the lands that were inherited throughout the family continue on and support that family. And so she's hearing this, she's getting super excited, and so Ruth begins to think, hey, there just might be, there just might be some hope yet for the future of her family. And just remember, we're coming from tragedy and we're working our way up through boldness and faithfulness and loyalty. So that kind of rounds out the end of chapter two. Chapter three begins with Naomi and Ruth putting together this plan to kind of get Boaz to really notice the situation. Hey, he knows some details, but like, let's just lay it out there so we can you know, bait the hook and get this whole thing moving forward. So here's what's going to happen. Ruth is going to stop wearing the clothes of a grieving widow. She's been wearing that the whole time. It's a mark for culture as well. And so she's going to stop doing that. And that's going to pretty much show all around her that she is available to be married. So Ruth, uh, the, here's the plan. Ruth goes to meet Boaz on his farm that night. Very carefully orchestrated situation where she goes and she lays down at the feet of Boaz as he's out in the farm asleep. And um, as she approaches him, Boaz wakes up and he kind of freaks out. And it's kind of hilarious to see his interaction there. You can just see it in your mind from those great moments. And um, uh, Ruth is very clear about her intentions. Uh, she asks, straight up asks Boaz if he will redeem Naomi's family and marry her Ruth. And so here's the thing. Boaz here is once again uh, amazed at Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family. He calls her a woman, a woman of noble character. Boaz, a man of noble character, recognizes and calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It is the very same term used to describe the woman in Proverbs 31, which I just find really incredible. So Boaz tells Ruth, here's the thing. I want you to wait for one day. I want you to wait for one day, and the next day, he says, I will redeem your family, and I will marry Ruth. And so, uh, and, and he'll do all these things in front of the town elders. He's pretty much saying, this is a done deal. I've got you. It's going to be okay. And so, uh, Boaz tells Ruth to wait the next day. The chapter ends with Ruth and Naomi at home, marveling at the blessings that he have, have just come their way because Boaz has stepped in and agreed to be that family redeemer. So the, the hopelessness of their whole family, of their livelihoods even, um, is just being redeemed entirely. And I think one of the things that is really interesting for us to know is essentially essential during that time as a family to have a son was to have the continuance of your family line. That's just how it was considered. And so this, this possibility of not just Naomi's family being redeemed back together, but Ruth also having a family and a life and kids is a quite incredible moment. And so here's where we are. Chapter 4, this is kind of where everything starts to come together. Uh, Boaz is, is, is working his magic, and at the very like, last minute, uh, Boaz learns that there is another family member who's closer than he is to Naomi's family, that he kind of should be considered the family redeemer if he wants to marry Ruth. And so uh, this, this guy, even though he was closer 
most eligible bachelor kind of moment candidate uh, to redeem the family. When he found out that Ruth was a Moabite, Moabite, he was like, nope. Like this goes back to the hatred and, and conflict that's between the two, the two nations. He, he wanted no peace. I don't want a piece of that at all. Absolutely not. He says, I will not. I'll decline to marry her. And so here's where it just gets amazing. And I love to see the stair-step process. The, the book describes Boaz as this man of noble character. Then we get to Ruth, and you see all her incredible loyalty and her faithfulness. And then Boaz himself calls her a woman of noble character. And so Boaz, knowing Ruth's true character, was honored to marry her and take up Naomi's family lands and fulfill the role of this family redeemer. And this kind of brings us to the second thing that I just want to look at and focus at, because this is what God does. God redeems beauty from ashes. Let me just read from you a little small section from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and grant those who mourn to Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit. It's a wonderful section of scripture. The phrases here in Isaiah 60, uh, 61, 1 through 3, they make the meaning of this little section, beauty from ashes, even more powerful. When Isaiah writes the words beauty for ashes, he uses a Hebrew word that doesn't really translate well for us. There's like three different ways that it can kind of work. One is like a headdress or a turban or a tiara. So beauty equals headdress, turban, or tiara. Okay, uh, but uh, the Hebrew word for beauty here. Uh, is, is really helping us understand that God is stating that he is going to wipe out the ashes upon your head. He's going to replace it with a beautiful and resplendent headdress. Isaiah also tells us that we'll be anointed with oil, a common practice of their time that was usually done in times of festivity. You're taking death and you're moving to life. You're taking mourning and you're moving towards celebration. It is the redemption of things that are wrong into the way they're meant to be. And so just as it was at the beginning where Ruth displayed this unmatched loyalty to Naomi's family, now here in chapter 4, we see Boaz showing loyalty to Naomi's family. The account actually concludes with a reversal of all the tragedies that happened in chapter 1. The death of the husband and the sons is redeemed, as Ruth is indeed married again, and she gives birth to a new son, bringing joy to Ruth and Naomi and growing their family further. Now, remember the opening tragedy uh, in chapter 1. It was followed by remarkable loyalty from Ruth to Naomi. And now that is matched by Boaz's loyalty to the family that ultimately leads to not just their family's restoration, but leads to the line of lineage of our Messiah. Like, can, can we just for a second stop and, and think of it in, in these terms? Like when we think of the, the lineage of Jesus, the lineage of the Messiah, the lineage of the Messiah, like you think of that in terms of 
uh, Jewish, 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 Hebrew, Hebrew, God works at all who are in that lineage line. And I just love that when it comes to God bringing in the Savior of our world, the ultimate Redeemer, He doesn't just follow a specific line. Instead, He uses everyone. He brings about the Messiah through a line of a whole bunch of different people from a whole bunch of different places. And as someone who is a Gentile, meaning not Jewish, as you all are as well, that is a really wonderful and encouraging thing. Now, I do want to throw this in there. There's a very curious aspect of this whole book of the Bible, which is that uh, in this particular account, uh, it's the fact that how little God is actually mentioned throughout the whole story. The characters in the story, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, they will mention God. But as the story is being written and accounted for, like if you want to put it in the terms of like the narrator's kind of voice, it's, it's completely absent, not even once. Um, and actually, while it seems a bit weird, it's, it's actually part of the brilliance of what we're about to take from this grand story. Because God's providence is at work behind every single scene in this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of the characters in it. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to believe, like I mentioned earlier, that God's punishing her. But actually this whole story is about God's plan to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through hope, her boldness and her loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life. And of course, not without Boaz, a no-nonsense farmer, as I mentioned earlier, who shows generosity and loyalty to both Ruth and Naomi's family. So you're having these, they seem repetitive themes of loyalty from one family to the other. Unmatched loyalty, unwarranted, unnecessary in some aspects. And God is using this, and he uses his integrity, Boaz's integrity, along with Ruth's boldness to save this family that for all intents and purposes, was, was really on the edge of defeat and destruction. To take something from the doorsteps of death and to bring them into life with the future moving forward. So there's just some incredible brilliance that's going on here that displays for us this interplay between God's purposes and his will and human decisions and will. And this brings us to like our third and final point. And I just, I love this little, this truth statement. It rings so well. And it's that God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes to the world. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive, redemptive purposes to the world. I mean, that's what this whole thing's about. Not just this book, the whole book, the whole Bible, the whole story of redemption. Think of all, and just hear me say it, screw-ups, all the screw-ups that God uses in the Bible. And he takes people who are just making horrible decisions sometimes, and he uses those people to bring about his goodwill to not just that person, but so many others. I mean, all the people that we mentioned, and we could do the whole thing. We could, we could start from all the way down. Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Joseph, Isaac, David, Solomon, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Like, we could name all the names and all the people. Just think about Peter. Let's just jump to New Testament. Think about the redemptive process of Peter. 
If you haven't watched The Chosen, by the way, it does a really great job of taking a character in the Bible and putting a lot of personality to him and helping to understand it. You taking the disciples themselves came to Jesus broken with poor thought, with terrible theology, with even worse discipline. They did not have their stuff together by any means whatsoever. Think of Paul, the hunter of Christians, redeemed to be the Apostle Paul. Think of Mary Magdalene, a prostitute. Thomas the doubter, Simon the zealot. Think of all the injured, all the disabled, all those who um, were lepers, all the sinners of the world that through Christ's love and God's redemptive will were redeemed and brought back. And I was thinking about this, and I thought maybe one of the greatest examples for me is me. For you should be you. Meaning, think of how you've been redeemed. I asked uh, my wife, Lauren, to ensure that the kids wouldn't be in here yet because we haven't had a whole bunch of our conversations uh, just about my past and my stories. But for you guys to know that um, like a lot of my story was really um, the dark periods, if you will, when people refer to those kind of stages, were pretty hopeless. I mean, I was a tried and true drug dealer. I was completely addicted and wasting my life away, and I was seeking joy and satisfaction in every aspect of life outside of Jesus. And my story, which we won't jump into the fullness of it, but like in that ending, that, that stage, that phase does not end well. It was hurtful. It was painful. Had friends who died. A lot of friends put in jail. Like there, there was nothing about me that I would ever want to brag about. I don't want people knowing those things except for the fact that now I can stand knowing that I, I don't have to live with the sign around my neck that says all the things that Brandon has done. Here, here's, a, here's a grade. Here's a score of Brandon's life. It's pretty low. You have to wear that for the rest of your life. No. The reason I get up and pray in the mornings, the reason that um, we proclaim Jesus' name is because there's no more condemnation. Sorry, I'm freezing. I don't know what's happening. Thank you. The blanket helps me feel a little bit better. But, um, I'm, but seriously, like, look what he's done. Work hard to not forget what it was like to be lost. We so often do that. I know I do that. And my thankfulness and my gratitude for who Jesus is and who he wants from, what he wants from me and who he wants me to be are forgotten when I forget those things. When I look at the wife that I have, when I look at the fact that I have three kids that I just freaking adore, and my life's not perfect. I'm as messed up as all of you. You know that. But look, look what God does. I have a new name. Not an actual name, but I mean, I'm his. I'm no longer Brandon the mess up. I'm Jesus. It's his life. He, li- he now lives through me. 
And so I, I think I just love so much that when we look at this huge story of redemption, you see God being faithful to take broken and helpless people like us and weaving them into his story so that he can bring about his plan, which is to redeem the world. And he's doing that through Jesus. And that's why we thank God and anticipate Advent because it's a reminder that in God's plan and his story, he sent his son for us. And it's so easy to forget. I know I forget all the time. And the the wonderful thing that what we refer to as the second Advent is that he's coming back. And just really quickly, I'm going to mention this because I think we forget this a whole bunch. I know that I, I do this as well. But it's the fact that Jesus is coming back it's the fact that he's coming back that I'm still a Christian. His resurrection from the dead made everything that he did perfect, paid for the price for me. But the fact that there's more, that I get to go and be with him, that he's coming back to take me and you and all the souls with him into heaven and not live in this stinking broken place anymore. It's the hope that I have. It's the hope of the redemption story of God that he came down to fix what we couldn't, to pay for what needed to be paid for and allowed us to have a life forever with him. And he's coming back so that we don't have to stay in it. And I'm just so thankful, so thankful through that. So God truly and genuinely is at work in the small and mundane aspects of mine and your life. And even though uh, I cannot wrap my head around how amazing and brilliant and that, that God is to do something like that with the weaving of all the things, the reality is this, despite our mankind's best efforts, we cannot thwart the redemptive, the redemptive process of God. Because he's so good, he just uses it. He's already planned to use it, he knows. I just love that. And all of this kind of leads to the end of this whole story. The book of Ruth, it ends with a short but beautiful genealogy, which, if you confess honestly, you probably all skip over. I know I do too sometimes. It's okay. I was in trouble. But it shows how Boaz, marrying Ruth, had a son named Obed. And Obed ends up being the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of our Messiah, Jesus. God took a family in the midst of tragedy, leaving their people in Israel to go to a foreign land where all the patriarchal figures of the house die and brings them back and restores them and redeems them and gives them a new life and uses that family to bring about our our Messiah, our, our Savior. So all of a sudden, these independently seemingly mundane, ordinary circumstances are woven into his grand story for redemption of the whole world. And so I just want to leave with this. We're we're, we're done. I just want to leave with this. I would be willing to bet in in an honest moment that um, we probably, you may not believe that God's really in all the things that's going on in your life or doesn't care or doesn't see them. It's very easy uh, as, as doubting people to do that. 
But I just encourage all of you, even as we're going through this huge redemptive story of God um, from the beginning to Jesus coming, I encourage you to look at your own life in that way. Go back and go through the small bits, the stories, the things that were hard and tough. Test and see if he's faithful. If you're someone who writes down your prayers, go back and look at them. See if he's fulfilled them. See how he answered it and brought provision and brought clarity. Remind yourself that he is with you by not forgetting. Because just as God used Ruth and Boaz to bring about the lineage of of the Messiah, he's using you and me and everyone in this place to do the same thing for his redemptive story for the world to have as well. You guys join me in prayer.